We are debtors to grace, aren't we? What a great debt and how much we stand in need of not just saving grace, but sustaining grace. And so thankful for that. Praise God for helping prepare hearts to worship by listening, preaching the word of God today. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll begin by looking at verse 11 this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11. We'll go through chapter 7 and verse 1. Paul says, Our mouth has spoken to you freely, or freely to you, O Corinthians, our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever or what agreement has the temple of God with idols for We are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them. Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Father in heaven, we ask your help by way of the spirit to illuminate the significance of this text to our hearts this morning in relationship to how your grace operates in gospel progress among us and then outside of us. Thank you, Lord, for what you will do by your Spirit's help. And may we leave this place having heard your word more joyful than when we first came today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hashtag love my church. I'm not sure where that started. I would like to say it began right here among the faithful at Grace Church of Mentor, but throughout the last 12 months... The faithful of God in Christ across the country began posting this hashtag statement on thousands of social media platforms. It was wonderful as a pastor to see because you folks posted that hashtag as well. My eyes would well up with tears as I'd see you post it. It revealed how deep and how wide your appreciation for God in Christ was doing to bring the flock of God closer to the Lord and to each other during a most unusual time. As the year trudged on, the meaning of the posting of the hashtag became even more meaningful because I personally knew the hearts of many of the saints typing the hashtag love my church at the end of their posts. 
They loved the fact that the content of the progress of the gospel was being protected at Grace. They adored the reality of how the church was able to love and care for herself because of the content of the gospel and its progress during this unusual time. And they loved the fact that the content of the gospel and the progress of the gospel was being guarded by all, both day and night. This is what Paul is doing in this portion of our text today. His passion was to protect the church so it enjoys the full scope of gospel work within her and without. So my proposition for today is simply this. Paul's defense of the church requires a plea for its continued purity and protection of the gospel and its progress. Paul's defense of the church requires a plea for its continued purity in relationship to the content of the gospel and its progress. And we find, first of all, in verses 11 to 13, that this is a very transparent plea. This is the most personal Paul would become with the Corinthian church in both of his letters to her. How do we know that? Well, there's only three times in the New Testament where he actually addresses the church by her name. He did it in Galatians. He did it in Philippians, and he does it here. And what does the context say that we've already read? Our our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. So we know when Paul does this in his writings, he's being most open with them, most passionate with them. And he does so with great intentionality as well. Our mouth has spoken freely to you. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us. In other words, you were never restrained by the gospel that we preached to you and how the grace of God changed your lifestyle because of that preaching of that gospel. That gospel made you free to live as righteously in Christ's likeness as you possibly can. That's what he's saying here. You were not restrained by the message that you received that changed your life. He says here, but you are restrained in your own affections. In other words, because they had allowed the, un, the, the, the merely religious among them to influence their thinking and to draw them back away into a, a works kind of salvation, they had begun to embrace the passions and the patterns and the traditions of mere religiosity. And they thought that was a freedom that they had been taken away from that now being tempted by merely religious people, they could be tempted back to, and they thought, this is really what we're all about again. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not freedom. That's living life in spiritual chains. You were freed from that bondage in Christ to live as freely as you want, governed by the Spirit, under Christ-likeness. So here Paul is simply teaching that it has not been the gospel that's held them back in their spiritual walk. It's been the influence of unbelief in the church that has trapped them in their self-inflicted lack of gospel growth. Any mere religious element in the church by its very nature, friends, seeks to inhibit and or restrain or put a damper on gospel growth among God's people. So just kind of let that sink for a little bit here. Even among, and we're going to highlight some of these things, even among good conservative Bible-believing churches, what are those things that happen among us uh, that can even damper or distract us away from giving the gospel and enjoying gospel 
progress together. Do you recall the last time we were together what the definition of genuine ministry that had integrity was? It's really, really simple. It's when, we stated in our family time this morning, it's when we see the grace of God operational in two regards, seeing people saved and seeing people grow in Christ-likeness. Paul's saying to the Corinthian people in his defense of his ministry here, hang on, I'm still on that train of thought. And really, if you're saved and you knew what it meant to grow in grace, but you've been distracted by that because of religious influence, come on back now. Here's my heart. I can't be more clear with you. Be reminded of the joy of gospel progress in your own life because that is life without chains. That's true spiritual success. True ministry success underpinned by God's grace and changing lives and salvation and spiritual growth is ministry exclusively underpinned by the influence of God's miraculous working in the people and among the people of God. If you can blame spiritual or ministry success on human effort, even as saved people, you're not really understanding what true grace is and how it operates. So-and-so is a great teacher. We praise God for that. And look how their class has grown. You know, so-and-so is a great administrative pastor. And because of, because of his skill set, look at what God's done to grow his church numerically. Right? We have spiritual gifts. They're to be employed to minister to one another, to advance the gospel to the fame of Jesus Christ, not to just glory unto ourselves. Right? And Paul says, Paul knows he's dealing with people that are always carrying around letters of reference for self-promotion rather than gospel promotion. And he knows the Corinthian people have lost their way. And he's basically telling here in a very compassionate, intentional way, come on, guys, get a grip. Remember the freedom that you had in Christ. And let's get back to that. And let's grow. Let's grow together. So ministry integrity, it's all of grace, right? So Paul opens his heart even wider to remind the people that the lack of passion that they may have for the gospel and its progress among God's people could be a self-inflicted issue. So I'll just stop real quick and ask you, real simply before we move on, because I think this whole thing's a gospel context, clear back into chapter five. We don't need to rehearse that history, right? When's the last time you prayed for an unsaved individual in your life to be saved? And when's the last time you gave the gospel to somebody? Okay? If we're living lives underpinned by the grace of God, this will be a consistent reality in our life. We will be praying for the lost and we will be seeking opportunities to give the gospel to the lost and God would grant those opportunities. The fruit is his to be harvested. It's our obligation to live that grace-filled life, right? to live that supernatural life so that we might truly know what spiritual and ministry success is. So he pleads with them in verse 13. 
Now, now in a like exchange, I speak to his children, open wide to us also. Paul was acutely aware that affection could only be given and not taken. So he's basically saying, in a fair exchange for my unrestricted love and affection for you, please, please give it back to me because this is about the gospel and its progress. Give your affections. If you're giving your affections back to me, you're giving your affections really in loyalty back to the gospel and its progress. This affection was founded in God's affection for the Corinthians as demonstrated in his gift of Christ to them. And it was all by grace. They've already heard that it is the very love of Christ that constrains them in chapter 5. So in a transparent plea of Paul to the Corinthians on the foundation of the love of God in Christ, he's, he's begging them to no longer be entangled in the worthless burden of mere religious influence. But to move forward in gospel progress and to remember the time when they did and to know that it was worth it all. You know, there's been a lot of self-inflicted things the church has done to entangle itself or herself um, in non-gospel chains, right? Uh, these, uh, these intentions, these, these motivations have not all been wrong or or impure, but it's a reminder to us that even well-motivated, uh, pure intentions can exclusively distract our minds and hearts away from gospel progress. I think of the institutionalization of the church, the, the, the programatized church, or the, the specialist church. Authors abound that talk about how the church becoming more of an institution, not just an institution, that God ordained to exist within human history for gospel purposes, but they institutionalized themselves where they became merely institutions of learning. There's nothing wrong with learning, right? There's nothing wrong with going from spiritual kindergarten to grad school. As a matter of fact, we're told by Peter to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But can merely being an institutionalized church, merely absorbing solid teaching, be a distraction away from gospel progress? And I would say the whole westernized church has been that. Therefore, demonstrating that there's 95% of American evangelicals that have never won a personal friend to Christ. But boy, we know our stuff. We got our doctrine straight. Programs can do the same thing. Nothing wrong with programs. We have a lot of them here. We can become specialized in, in running programs, even about Bible content, right? and become known as the church that does this well or does that well or does the other well. For what purpose? Even the church can become distracted by good motivations and even some decent methodologies. We can't ever forget that in that process, we can become somewhat religious if we lose our gospel way personally and then collectively. This is one of the reasons our former pastor here of 35 years would often say, I'm a little uncomfortable that there hasn't been any professions of faith among us for a while. This is exactly why. 
Some of you have been here long enough would remember him saying that. I remember him saying that. I understand that God's maybe not saved someone every day in our community, but my goodness, it's been months. It's been over a year, and we haven't seen anyone come to know Christ. We need to pray. But in that process, we were teaching well. We were running our programs well. We were a very, very busy church. Paul's reminded the Corinthian people that that you can become just merely go-to-meeting church people. You can be three or four service-a-week people and, and really not be where you should be in relationship to gospel progress. Okay? So each of these realities, among others, for decades, though approached with pure motive... And nothing more had become nothing more than mere distractions to gospel progress. We always say here, doing the right thing the wrong way is still wrong. It seems so odd to all of us to think that the pursuit of something good can lead to an unbalanced approach to ministry to the point it can actually adversely affect individual and ultimately hold church gospel progress, but it can. I really believe a grace that because of the testimonies we heard last week and we heard the month before that and we've heard in a handful of months, even during um, a global pandemic, right, that, that you understand what Paul's trying to challenge the Corinthians with. Right? I don't really believe that well, I'm preaching Corinth. We have to hear it how they heard it. But I don't believe by your very makeup that you are a Corinthian church at this point in their spiritual progress. But yet it's still good information to hear, isn't it? Good reminders to hear. Because all of us can be personally and then collectively tempted away from gospel progress, even pursuing good things. But my goodness, the application here was the Corinthians were being distracted away from gospel progress because of dark religious things. Paul says, don't be self-trapped. Come back and listen. And let's do this properly. I think, I hope all of us get into our email if you still use email. I know that those of you under 40 rarely touch it. And I get it. I tire of it as well. Most email to me is just white noise. And I'm 53, so I can imagine how you younger ones painfully exist by having to read all these letters. Um, but I'll tell you what, you know, if there's, there's two emails that I love to look for, right? I love to look for prayer requests from the individual classes, right? Prayer requests from our missions committee for our missionaries, right? Because... I use those as my prayer lists, right? And I love to get new birth announcements. Certainly I love to, I don't know if love's the right word. We get emails about Grace Bible Day Camp. We get emails about Ultimate Challenge. We get emails about celebration of service. We get emails about Sunday schools and fellowships and picnic at the potters and all those things. And all those things are good, they're fine. Right? We may never stop any of those things. We don't ever want to be distracted merely by those things until looking forward to those new birth emails, right? <laughs> and, and seeing people baptized. I know God's in control of the numbers of all that. Um, 
But Paul's asking the Corinthian people here that have gotten used to not hearing of and seeing new birth to no longer be used to that. Because mere religiosity, hang on with me here, because you're on the threshold, I'm not speaking to anyone specifically, but generally, you're on the threshold of being merely a religious person if you grow comfortable with a lack of gospel progress in your own life and in the life of our church family, okay? All right, that's that, uh, it's that lukewarm thing, kind of. It's one application to the lukewarm aspect of the Laodicean church that some of you know of in the book of Revelation, okay? All right, so hashtag love my church. I do love my church. I do love my church because I know how passionate you are about your own prayer life in relationship to your personal witness. And I know how thrilled you are when you read new birth announcements. And I know how you have endeared yourselves to longing for worship in the context of our ordinances when people are baptized and they testify of how God's grace radically transformed the way they live. And they're willing to be identified with him. And then you love to get with each other and then to grow each other deeper and wider in your understanding of the word. And that, uh, that reaching, that winning, that saving, and then that growing, right? The two sides of that same coin, Paul's telling the Corinthian churches, you once adored that, now you don't, so let's get back to it. And these are the reasons why you should love your church. So this is the plea of Paul, a very transparent, intentional plea to allow the grace of God to challenge their heart, to not be focused upon the things that impede their personal gospel progress. Now, apparently, our second and final point this morning in uh, chapter 6, verses 14 to 18, our conclusion will be chapter 7 and verse 1. Apparently, the religious influence among the genuinely saved at Corinth had begun to affect the way they worshiped when they gathered together. Now we understand how Paul addressed the Corinthian church with how they were inappropriately handling the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We know that. But apparently there was a group of Corinthian true believers that were coming to church, so to speak, every Lord's Day. And they were thinking that what they were experiencing in their true church, local church context among the same among saved people was really second rate to what they had experienced in religious contexts outside the church before they were saved. Somehow, right, as the flow of the text we'll see both here and into chapter 7, somehow we can see that even the, the affections for genuine biblical worship among truly saved Corinthian peoples were waning. And they began to think about, wow, you know what, it was kind of really good the way I had it before I was saved. And that's what happens when you lose your gospel purpose in life. You begin to second guess what God's given you. And you get to think, oh man, you know what? Maybe it was better. You know what? Boy, when I went to that old church, I, I worshiped that way. I could kind of do what I wanted to. <laughs> I kind of enjoyed life a little bit more. Right? And so Paul addresses here a transcendent plea, if you will. It's very clear. And we're going to define for you why I believe, I believe that the scripture is teaching here of a worship context, pretty much exclusively. 
because of the immediate context and then of the chapter and then the book context. But he says here in verse 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. Okay. Well, obviously we know he doesn't mean that panoramically in our lives, right? Because then we would have to take out Colossians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 out of our Bibles. And we would have to take Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17 out of our Bibles. We would have to take 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 5 out of our Bibles. We would have to take 1 Corinthians chapter 7 out of our Bibles. Certainly the Lord, for his purposes, have us, has us interacting with people that need Jesus. Right? But there have been some that have taken this verse way out of context and said there should be no association at all with unbelievers. And that, of course, just can't be true. A simple reading of Scripture tells us that can't be true. So this demand has to be defined within the immediate context of what's going on here. But he makes the demand nonetheless. Right? So again, we'll remember the immediate context of the book of 2 Corinthians and the matters at hand that Paul has been addressing regarding religious unbelief and their influence in the church. So next, we'll see some phrases here that guide our minds and hearts towards exactly what Paul is addressing. So we'll highlight some things here, then get down to the, some skinny of some things here to help us understand. There's five questions stated here by Paul. And in the fifth, Right? And in the fifth question that we've already read this morning, the fifth question immediately directs our attention to what Paul is addressing. The fifth question reads, what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? And the following statement, for we are the temple of the living God. Paul calls the church the temple of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, he calls your body the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. So in a New Testament context, the individual indwelt by the believer that gathers for worship within the flock, as we're doing today, would be the church. So I believe Paul is speaking within the immediate context about the integrity of corporate worship. The religious unbelief among them would not have only have been tempting them to return to a works-based salvation, they would have been alluring them back to former religious practices and making those once again attractive to them. So if we couple this understanding with the phrase of the living God with other places where it is written, we begin to understand that Paul is warning the Corinthians to protect the content of the gospel among them in order to protect the integrity of worship as they gathered together. Paul uses this phrase, the, the living God, in five New Testament contexts. Romans 9, 2 Corinthians 3, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 Timothy 3, and 4. Why does he do that? Well, in a New Testament context, the saved Jew would have recognized why he described God as a living God because they'd have remembered back to Old Testament context where we serve a true and living God as opposed to idols, inanimate objects that have no spiritual influence in our lives at all. Okay. 
So again, the backdrop of these New Testament phrases is really an Old Testament contrast between the living God of Israel and the lifeless idols of pagan nations. And Paul has already warned the Corinthians of the idolatry that often accompanies religious activity. He took most of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to already remind the Corinthians of the temptation to live idolatrous lives. And yes, he is calling here religion apart from exclusively trusting Christ as Lord and Savior for your salvation, idolatry. You don't have to be involved in idolatry by exclusively having a physical object that you bow down to or worship. He's saying here religious worship is again becoming an idol to you and you are no longer satisfied in Christ by living, worshiping the true and living God. And for many of us that grew up a long time without Christ in our lives, I'm certain that this can be a temptation to you as well to allow these former religious practices and traditions to have such a... uh, a stronghold in your lives where I can, I can very easily see how you can again be tempted and, and lured back to embracing that which you enjoyed in a religious sense all of your life. And, and Paul's just basically saying to you, sweet saints, he's saying, listen, um, remember in that religious context, right? there wasn't many people at all passionate about seeing you born again. They weren't, they weren't, Um, very interested in your eternal destiny. They weren't interested in you intimately relating with the God of heaven in Jesus Christ, and they weren't really interested in you living a changed life either. So, as we journey back to Paul's transcendent plea in verse 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. The very usage of the word bound would also instruct us that this would was probably Paul demanding of the Corinthian believers to not enter into a close, I use these words on purpose, right? Close, intentional, premeditated, meaningful relationship with religious unbelief in the context of worship. He further clarifies the contrast between the light of the gospel and the darkness of the works-based salvation system by stating four questions prior to the fifth, which instructs us that this is a worship context. He says, for what partnership hath righteousness with lawlessness? And he's basically saying, remember, while you lived under the law in your works-based salvation, you lived a lawless life. Because there was no miraculous grace that, that, that changed the way you lived. But now in Christ, you have the righteousness of Christ. The Spirit of God gives you the ability to live righteously under Christ's likeness. And they're diametrically opposed to one another. Righteousness and your lifestyle in religion that was lawless. What fellowship is light with darkness? That's a simple rhetorical question. What harmony has Christ with Satan? The word Belial here, you can study the historic context on your own, uh, was pretty much a name for the dark one that was, um, has its history back to the intertestamental time period. But the Corinthian people would have known that 
that, that religious unbelief was really a, a, a church of the dark one. As long as Satan can keep people's eyes away from understanding the sufficiency of Jesus and why he came, he wins. Right? That's why in chapter 4 we saw him described as the God of this world. He's a tremendous distractor away from the sufficiency of Christ or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever in the context of worship. We often say here, when, when people come here to worship, they ought to see a divine difference among us. And that difference is Christ. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. The way believers love one another is different than the way mere religious people love one another. There's so many points in which we identify with each other in the way that righteousness governs our lives. There's few people in the world that really get us. <laughs> And the way we live, and especially the way we worship. And that's why we say when people that don't know Jesus come here, they ought to see the love of Christ in you. But they ought to also hear and see something that they're not used to hearing and seeing Monday through Saturday. So both in the sound and content of our worship, it must be exclusive. Why? Well, God's exclusive. Jesus is exclusive. Be holy as I am holy applies also to worship. So these four additional questions clarify for us how much God intends the church to protect its worship of him. They're intentionally given to demonstrate the exclusive difference between those who have a saving knowledge of God's, a knowledge of God's saving grace apart from a works-based salvation. And in a worship context, the target is placed on the belief system of both mere, of, of, the, of the merely religious and those saved by grace, not exclusively upon the religious who are made in the image of God, yet misguided by their own religious system. The progress of the gospel, the protection of the gospel needs to be protected not just in our personal lives, right, or in the personal lives of the Corinthian believers, but that protection is carried into worship and the assembly of the church as well. So I would say based on Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 that part of the enticement of each other to love and good deeds must contain at time to time some gospel content. How do we encourage each other? If I'm going to connect the two passages, one, they're both ecclesiastical worship contexts. Certainly we're going to weep with each other. We're going to rejoice with each other. We're going to, we're going to share our spiritual gifts with each other. That's all biblical. But really, apparently, and obviously apparently among us, gospel progress is very exciting. And if you have an opportunity to ask someone to pray for someone you're witnessing to in the context of fellowship here at church, you ought to do it. Maybe you ought to sit down and sit down and pray for them right on the spot. Maybe we ought to testify more and more about those gospel opportunities God gives us in our own neighborhood and do so not just privately but publicly. What encouragement that is. It entices me to love and good deeds uh, for sure. So certainly the changed life of a believer is lived outside the assembly as well. There are some secondary applications to this context that I even hesitate to mention because they've become exclusive applications of this context, and I think that's inappropriate. 
this has become for some primarily a marriage context. The saved shouldn't marry someone that doesn't know Jesus. That is not an application here. I personally believe at all. There's a plenty of other Bible verses to guide us along marital lines, right? This has been an application of how one church should not associate with another church based on this context. I don't believe that's a primary application here at all. I used to. The primary application here is individualized for our local church as it was for the Corinthian local church. That we ought to make sure that we're passionate about what grace is doing among us in salvation and gospel progress. And if we are, that will influence us to protect the integrity of our worship right here, right now. Okay. I don't see an application here of us applying this text to another church or another context. But this is exclusively for the protection of how we worship our God who's brought us back to himself, reconciled him, us to himself in Jesus Christ alone. So certainly one author wrote, and I would agree with it, but I wouldn't say it's a primary context. One author wrote, do not form a relationship, whether a temporary or permanent, with unbelievers that would lead to the compromise of Christian standards or jeopardize consistency with Christian witness. It's the only reason I'm using this, because he talks about the witness. Don't, don't do anything that compromises that. And why such separation, he asks, because the unbeliever does not share the Christian standards, sympathies, or gospel goals. So if we can apply that to the context of worship, then we've heeded the Apostle Paul's plea here for us as a local church. So Paul uses some Old Testament passages here as we wrap up this morning to solidify what he intends the direction of the church to be regarding entering into pagan worship practices and lifestyles that adversely affect the gospel and its changed life and purpose. Verse 17, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. This is a cross-reference of Isaiah 52 and verse 11. As the prophet speaks for God to those who had been captive in the Babylonian Empire, who may have been tempted to, while they were there for those many decades, to fall prey to their religious practices. This is why, I think, again, I think this is a context of worship. Come out from among them. You're back home now. You're headed back home now. Right? We're going to institute worship according to God's directives. Okay. Verse 18. I will be a father to you and, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. A context from Ezekiel. And he shows us that how intimate this relationship is by using the personal pronoun you and using the word father, familial terms, and sons and daughters reminding us that, that this is an individualized, personal worship of you to the Lord long before you come together with the body of God's people and then we collectively worship him who's worthy of our worship as our creator. 
And then he uses some texts from the Pentateuch to say in verse 16, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Reminding the people that God's presence actually was with them, (laughs) right? In the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder to them that God was always with them and their worship of him ought to be protected and according to his holy standards. Certainly, folks, if we are changed by the grace of God in Christ, we're going to have changed lives. And those changed lives are lived out there as demonstration of what God can do to change somebody. Right? I was talking to a friend of mine, um, doesn't go to church here, um, but is part of another church out of state, and he had recently run into some friends that uh, he used to run and do some pretty crazy things with before he got saved. And life took them in their own directions, and they had had the opportunity to, to have a reunion and to um, see what's going on in their lives again. And it was obvious very, very quickly in that conversation after that reunion that there was a difference in the way that his friends lived their, continued to live their lives compared to how Jesus changed his life. And they said, man, what in the world happened to you? Right? What in the world happened to you? And that's a big question, isn't it? And another one said, so did you become one of those Jesus freaks? It's interesting how much of the world knows that. (laughs) That Jesus can and does change lives. Certainly that's true out there. But that spirit-filled changed life, unaffected by religious unbelief inside the church or outside the church, gathers together to exclusively worship a holy God in a way that pleases that holy God. And that's good. And that actually is demonstrative of a greater gospel progress that that church is actually making. Think about this as we close. If a church worships with integrity because it appreciates how grace is operating among her, then that church is testifying that we are all about gospel progress. Individual growth in Christ's likeness and witness outside. You see, folks, because worship was never designed to be exclusively evangelistic. And this text is proving that once again. Does that make sense? Okay. We worship God with integrity as grace-transformed people so that we might go out and reach those who need Jesus so that they might know his joy and his peace in their own soul so then they are equipped by him to gather together and to worship with the people of God. So the integrity of our worship is, is exclusively tied to our gospel progress here right inside the context. So no, it's not just traditional worship honors God. You call it whatever you want, conservative. 
Worship wars are not in this text. All I can tell you is that people appreciate how grace operates in their lives, individually and collectively, worship God with integrity according to these guidelines. And those people are the people that have the greatest gospel burden when they go out into the world. And they're realizing here that they're just not here to defend a worship style. That's so not in this context. But they will worship with integrity so that they can do what? Be gospel light. Okay? So chapter 7 and verse 1, therefore, here we go, right? Now we're going to step outside the church for a moment. Therefore, what's the conclusion of this immediate context? Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And all that's saying is this, right? There were pagan practices that came along with pagan worship. In this context, they were often tied to immoral lifestyles. So remember, religion's going to pull you back into the vortex of an unchanged life and don't don't go there, but keep growing in spiritual maturity. The word perfection here is just completeness, right? It's growing in spiritual maturity, right? In holiness and the fear of God, which if I had time, I could prove that those words are used here to define this as a worship context as well. Okay. So, How's your testimony outside the church? If you're worshiping with integrity inside the church, you'll have a pure and unsullied by the world gospel testimony outside the church. If you're struggling with your testimony outside the church and you're failing more than you're succeeding, you could possibly be tempted back to a works type salvation, which is really demonstrative of an unchanged life. Okay, So going to church, if you will, going to worship in this context has incredible gospel intentionality behind it. All right. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to study your word today. Um, help us, Lord, as we go from this place to rejoice in the fact that in your mercy you decided to save us from our own sinfulness our own waywardness by allowing our hearts to learn of Christ and his death on the cross. And, and I thank you, Lord, I'm personally and then on behalf of our flock for your grace, that unmerited favor from heaven that allowed us to hear the exclusive message of Jesus that he can save and give peace to the soul. And I, I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity, your grace to grow us and then to help each other grow in that grace and then to maintain worship that is worship that is undefiled, reverent, honoring to you as safe growing people so that we can again leave this place stronger, more joyful to go out and to reach a world that needs Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.